start. Acts chapter 20. If you could open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. We will be projecting the verse up, but it's much better, I think, to have the Bible in your hand, uh, to get used to the layout, and I encourage you to do that uh, if you have a Bible. If you'd like one, uh, one of our ushers can get you a Bible. Does anyone like a Bible who doesn't have one? Just raise your hand, and one of the ushers will bring one to you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20, and it is uh, wonderful, wonderful to be back here in the pulpit, bringing you God's Word uh, after being gone for four Sundays. Um, so glad to so glad to be here and so glad to serve you. And it is a holy privilege um, to be used of God, to bring His Word, uh, to be with you guys. And my time away uh, from the pulpit was for the purpose of ministering to my family and being with them and um, and. It was a wonderful time, and as I've said before, thank you so much for your prayers. Thank you so much uh, for all of your care and support. Many of you have sent cards, uh, just express your support, and um, it's a wonderful blessing to me and my family to have you guys and your support um, during this time. And, and being away from the pulpit uh, has only made me uh, more excited about God's Word, because during the time that I was away, one of the things that I did actually was minister the Word, and I saw the Word work. I saw the Word at work in my family. I saw the Word as I shared with my dad promises from John, uh, John 6, John 11, John 14. I watched the Word do its work in my dad's life, and to watch my dad put his faith and in, 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 uh, rest in Christ. Um, his Word is wonderful. It's powerful. Uh, it brings life. And so thank God for, for His Word, His wonderful Word. It's more than just black and white. It's God's living, authoritative Word that uh, gives us life. And so we're going to continue in His Word. We've been in a series in the book of Acts. We've been out of Acts for a little while. If you remember back in, I think it was February, uh, we were in chapter 19. And then we took a little time to look at spiritual warfare from Ephesians 6. So chapter 19, Paul was in Ephesus, and we saw the Word of God do amazing things in Ephesus. Paul went in and preached the Word. And this, uh, this large city, the fourth largest city in the world at the day, so the modern equivalent of New York City, uh, the Word of God just came and, and just turned it upside down, turned the whole region upside down. And it looks like perhaps as many as half the population responded to the Word of God. We don't know the exact numbers. We know they were large because of what we saw in, in chapter 19 and different indicators. That there were a lot of people. The whole region was affected by the Word of God. And, 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 uh, and it's, it would be comparable to someone going into New York City and, and preaching the gospel, preaching Christ, and, and watching the, the city of New York really turn upside down, the economy turn, uh, change drastically, and then the whole region uh, to be altered as well. What a wonderful harvest he's had at Ephesus. And the story continues uh, as we follow it along in Acts. Paul uh, leaves Ephesus. He goes from Ephesus over to Macedonia to strengthen the Macedonian and Greek churches. And then from there, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to bring an offering uh, because he wants to bring an offering from the Gentiles to the Jewish believers. He sees and understands the, the important uh, connection between 
uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, that historic connection there. And he, and he wants to, to bring back an offering and, and, to, uh, and to bring glory to God, bring the blessing, uh, and help fulfill in many ways God's intention to bring blessings to his entire people, uh, even using Gentiles to materially bless the Jews. So he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And on the way back, he stops off near Ephesus. And he calls the elders, the, the elders from Ephesus, to come to him. And, and there's probably a substantial amount of elders. This is a large church and a lot of elders. He calls them to him in um, Miletus to meet with him. And that's where we're going to start in uh, chapter 20, verse 17, as he speaks to these elders. But let's pray as we read God's word and seek to listen to his word today that he would speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your word, your life-giving word. Thank you, God, for caring for us in this way that you'd preserve the word for us that, that here, uh, 2,000 years later or so, we can read about this, what happened, and more than that, we can hear your word, your report, what you want us to know about it. You have things to do, Lord, in and through us as a church. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak. Give us ears to hear. Work your glorious and eternal purposes, we pray, and be magnified through it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that, he would, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Acts chapter 20, 17 to 38, God's word for us. What a poignant passage of Scripture. Can you imagine if you were Paul, or can you imagine if you were in a similar situation? That you knew that you weren't going to see a group of people again on this earth. Maybe your family, if you knew that you wouldn't be able to see your family again for some reason. Or your church, or your co-workers. If you knew that you wouldn't get to see them again, it was the last time you had to speak to them, what would you say? What would you say to your family? What would you say to your friends? What would you say to your co-workers? I'm sure that you would be careful about what you said in the sense that you would want to maximize the time. You wouldn't spend much time talking about the Red Sox or the weather in a situation like that. You would get down to the most important things and you would seek to say it clearly and crisply. That's what we have here in Acts chapter 20. We have Paul, knowing that he will not see these Ephesian elders again, making the most of his time with them. And it's a wonderful passage. We don't have any other passage quite like this, where Paul at length addresses elders, at length even addresses believers. Here we have Paul at length addressing them. And the closest thing we have in Scripture would be the letters of First and Second Timothy or Titus, which are actually very similar to what we see here where Paul was addressing elders, and Second Timothy especially, as he knew it was his last address, perhaps, in written form to Timothy. And it is an amazing insight into what Paul considers most important for the Ephesian church. That's what this passage is, really. It's what Paul considers most important for the Ephesian church. He knows he's not going to see these elders again. He knows he's not going to see the Ephesian church again. This is a church that's precious to him. He's been there three years. He's poured out his life for these people. He loves them dearly. He loves these elders dearly. and He knows he's not going to see them again. And he wants to do all he can to do his best for this church. And so he calls the elders to come to talk with him. And he chooses what he wants to say. And in this passage, what we see him doing, we'll go through these individual points, we see him laying out for them an example, the life of a shepherd from his own example. We see him laying out to them the the charge of the shepherd, the flock of God. We see him laying out for them the challenge of the shepherd, the wolves and the false prophets. And we see him laying out, and again and again, this is all woven through it, the chief confidence of the shepherd. 
the Word of God. So we see these four different things that Paul is doing. And really behind those four things is Paul's understanding. His understanding that, and this may sound overstated, but I think it's what he's thinking. His understanding that godly shepherds are the future of the church. Godly shepherds are the future of the Ephesian church. That's what we draw from this. And we... By implication, understand that godly shepherds are not only the future for the Ephesian church, but godly shepherds are the future for King of Grace Church and anything that he would do in our family of churches or any church. Godly shepherds are the future of the church. And this is in some ways an instruction manual for godly shepherds. We learn about that here, and the implications are to understand that, to value that, but also for us to to understand that God calls us in that understanding, to do things like identifying godly shepherds, being part of raising up godly shepherds, probably most importantly, praying for godly shepherds, not only your current shepherd, but the future shepherds God would have, praying and asking God to raise up godly shepherds for the future of King of Grace Church and what he wants to do in and through this church, to be part of training and deploying them and then following them as they lead us. So there's a lot here for us. So let's dig in. First, the life, the shepherd's life that Paul talks about. This passage, he, he talks uh, a number of times about his own example. Paul is not someone who likes to boast. If you read First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in particular, you see that, that he, he's not looking to boast about himself. When you read about his example here, it's, it would be in some ways reluctant. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, you see him boasting actually in a way where he, he wants to show uh, how weak he is. So he boasts about his weakness. His boasting here, uh, if it could be called boasting, his setting forth of his own example is for the sake of these elders so that they would learn from his example what a godly shepherd looks like. And what an example we see in Paul. This could be a message unto itself. Paul talks about here uh, of his example and one of the things that stands out is, is, is his heart for people. His example in his heart. He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. It says later that I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's heart was for these people. And we see as we study the life of Paul, he was a man who loved his people dearly. 1 Thessalonians, in his, one of his earliest letters to this fledgling church, is just full of affection. I think we have this to project, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter, um, chapter, uh, chapter 2, oh, and then Philippians. Keep on turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, we see as Paul speaks of them of the people. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul didn't just, he wasn't just this mastermind theologian that marched into town and just simply, you know, taught the gospel and just left people to themselves. He was a a shepherd who was involved with his people. He knew them. He loved them. Look at the picture in chapter 20 when he goes to leave them and he tells them, I won't see you again. What's their response? They're, They're embracing him. They're kissing him. And it says there were tears on the part of all. 
So it wasn't just the elders who were crying. Paul himself is crying, weeping as he says goodbye to these elders. Later on in 1 Thessalonians, at the end of chapter 2, this is a young church that he was torn away from. and It burdened him greatly. He says, but since, in verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. Is it not you? You are, for you are our glory and joy. Paul's example is one of a deep heart, a deep affection for his people. He loved them. He loved them and he wanted, he wanted what was good for them. He wanted God's glory through their lives. He loved them dearly affectionately. He ministered with tears. Can you picture him ministering in Ephesus? To have Paul over your house in your care group was to have a man share these things with urgency and tears. Understanding how precious these things were, how precious you were. He did it in public, house to house, night and day, with tears. A godly shepherd is a shepherd who has a heartfelt love for God's people. Is that on your list of qualities of a godly shepherd? A heartfelt love for God's people. That's Paul's example that he lays before these Ephesian elders. It's interesting to see, though, that Paul's love was just not merely affection, not just merely emotion, but Paul worked really hard. It it was consistent. His affections and emotions for these people in his love was consistent with his behavior, his conduct. He worked hard. He worked very hard in serving these people and ministering the gospel to them. He says, I did not shrink back, in verse 20, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house and later night and day. This is a man who labored hard with the word of God to these people. He loved them. And he labored hard. He worked hard. And it's interesting to see that he worked hard amidst tears, it says early on, and trials. This is a man who who loved the people. He loved the Lord. He understood the importance of the gospel. And so he he continued through trials. He went through some major trials. We heard last week as Jace uh, Hudson from our sister church preached from Romans chapter 8 about trials and about Paul's trials. They were incredibly difficult trials. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.8, when he's addressing the Corinthians, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. And he says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. His trials were so significant that he despaired of life itself. We don't know what that particular trial was. We can see a list of his trials in 2 Corinthians. This is a man who went through serious trials, serious opposition. And and you would think that after all this, that he would just kind of limp along. He would just survive. He would just kind of go into maintenance mode. I know that can happen to me when I go through trials. I just get in survival mode and we just got to make it through here. But this is a man that was compelled by the gospel, compelled by Jesus Christ, who was shaped by the truth that God came as a man 
and lived this righteous life and, and offered up this life on the cross for his sins, for his forgiveness, for his reconciliation with God. And, and this message was for all people, for the joys of all people, that this message was, was the working of God to bring all things into his plan, to, to change the universe. He was a man so affected by this and living in this that he worked hard for the gospel even through trials. Night and day, public and private, easy times, hard times, preaching and teaching the Word of God, preaching faith and repentance in Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 1, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He grounded himself on Christ. And he understood that for me to be alive is an opportunity to minister Christ to others, to preach Christ, to see lives changed, to see God glorified. And that motivated him. To bring the message. And for him to to die would be even better. It was to go to be with Christ. And this drove this man in hard work. To be a godly pastor is to work hard. You don't go into pastoring. You don't go into being an elder looking for a cushy, well-paying job. Um, That's just dumb. Uh, And it's not, not the case. To be a godly pastor is to work hard. Now, I don't mean to say that there isn't a place for rest and recreation. That's very important. That's design. God calls us to. And if you don't rest and recreate appropriately, you're disobeying God, I believe. So there's a place for that. But there is to be hard work. Listen to what our friend and Pastor Charles Spurgeon says to, I think, elders and potential future elders as well. Really, to all of us. I think we have this to project. This is uh, Spurgeon on his deathbed, actually. Uh, This is a man who pastored for years, worked very hard for the Lord. He says, if I have any message to give from my own bed of sickness, it would be this. If you do not wish to be full of regrets when you are obliged to lie still, work while you can. If you desire to make a sick bed as soft as it can be, do not stuff it with mournful reflections that you wasted time while you were in health and strength. People said to me years ago, you will break your constitution down with preaching ten times a week. Can you imagine ten times a week? preaching ten times a week, and the like. Well, if I have done so, I am glad of it. I would do the same again. And if I had fifty constitutions, I would rejoice to break them down in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. You young men that are strong, overcome the wicked one and fight for the Lord while you can. You will never regret having done all that lies in you for our blessed Lord and Master. Crowd as much as you can into every day and postpone no work till tomorrow. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. To serve the Lord is to joyfully work hard for Him. Rest when it's time to rest, but joyfully work hard. This is Paul's example. Paul was generous as well. Uh, and we see this in this passage. He says at the end that he, that he worked with his own hands. His own hands ministered to his material needs and the needs of others. He was a man who was generous. And he wanted to leave them an example, a pattern. He wanted them to enjoy the, the blessings of the promise of Christ. It's more blessed to give than to receive. He's calling them to be unselfish. He's calling these elders really to not be elders for material gain. 
That being an elder, being a shepherd in a church is about serving others. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's a wonderful privilege to serve others. And you don't become an elder, you don't become a shepherd, and, and you don't hire or, or, or put in a, establish a shepherd for material gain. Certainly you want to take care of your shepherds, but it's not for material gain. Now, some have said that from this passage, we should conclude that all elders should uh, not be compensated, that, that they should work for their own means. I don't think that's what Paul's meaning here. As a matter of fact, in instructions to Timothy to this very church, he has in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor means not only the honor of this is our elder, we want to support them, but material compensation. Uh, so, so they should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul's not saying, he's not negating what's in First Timothy 5, his instructions to the same church, but he's setting a context for elders to, to not do what they do for material gain. And also the reality that probably in this group of elders, there were all different types of elders. There were elders that, that were... Uh, perhaps full-time preaching and teaching. There were those who were bivocational as well. And there were those who perhaps well, were working full-time in, in another job. And he wants to call them to, to serve, to enjoy serving, and, and to not uh, do so for material gain. And actually the model of, uh, of, of a team of elders, of, of full-time and part-time elders, is a wonderful model. And there are churches where they're able to compensate all their elders full-time, and, and most churches in the world, they're not able to do that. I think particularly in New England, it is wise to build on this model that we have a mix of, of elders. We have elders that are full-time and elders that are part-time. Uh, because we're called for, to plurality, elders are called to work as a team. And yet, in New England, I don't think we're going to grow large churches where we can have big teams that are fully compensated. So there's wisdom here for us. I just think about what we can do as God leads us in these truths and raises up godly elders, what we can do as a church here at King of Grace, as he gives us a team of elders, some working full-time, some part-time, perhaps one full-time, others part-time, but but think what he can do with a team like that here and think what he can do as he leads us forward. In many ways for us as a church, uh, what God is doing hinges on him doing some of these things in our midst. For me as an elder, as I look at what God's doing, I'm very excited, but I'm praying, I'm asking God, would you give us more shepherds? Would you give us a team? I think God has a lot for us as a church. A lot for us to use us here in the greater Haverhill area. A lot for us, Lord willing, to be able to plant up into Manchester and otherwise. I can, I can tell you other things I dream about. Planting into Boston, things like that. A lot of it hinges on God's grace to us through giving us shepherds to work together as teams. So please pray for this and ask God to do this, to raise up godly shepherds Godly shepherds are the future of the church. Paul continues. He, he talks about his example here, his example of his life. He wants them to understand this example. He also talks about the shepherd's charge in this section of Scripture. Shepherds, godly shepherds, pastors, elders. Pastor and shepherd is actually the same word in Scripture. Elder, overseer um, are all synonymous in Scripture. They all go together. And, and pastors are called, shepherds are called to care for the most important commodity in the whole universe. 
They're called to care for the most important commodity in the whole universe, the people of God, the precious people of God. Paul says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That, that shepherds are called to care for the flock, God's people. A flock is a flock of sheep. A shepherd takes care of sheep. Uh, the flock that's speaking of is the flock of the sheep, God's people. And to be his sheep is actually a wonderful thing. To be called the sheep of God is a wonderful thing. It's, it's, uh, it speaks to us of how dear we are to the Lord. So Psalm 100 says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. To be called his flock means that we're precious to the chief shepherd. He loves us. We're dear to Him. He knows us. He calls us by name. And shepherds are, are called really to be under shepherds, under the chief shepherd for this precious flock of God. And it's wonderful for us to be called a flock. It means that we're dear to God, but there's another side of it. It means that we're dear, but it also means that we're dumb. Um, sheep are dumb animals. And uh, they are pretty much helpless left to themselves. They wander. Uh, They get in trouble. The the wolves come in and devastate them. To be a sheep is to be dependent on the Lord. And sheep, flocks of sheep cannot exist safely and prosperously without shepherds. So being called a flock means that we're dear to God, but it also means we're dumb. And that means all of us. We're dumb. We need help. We need godly shepherds. So Scripture is full of, of instruction on that. When, when Jesus looks out at the crowds in Matthew 9, he, he looks at the crowds and he sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Because they don't have a shepherd, meaning him mainly, but also the under-shepherds God would give. They're harassed and helpless. Uh, elsewhere it says, strike, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Shepherds are to care for the flock. They are to care for the precious people of God. And flocks need shepherds. They need multiple shepherds. Godly shepherds are the future of the flock. Paul calls the flock the church of God as well. That's a wonderful phrase. In just a few words, church of God. This, the church. A church is a gathering. A church is not a building in Scripture. It's a gathering of God's people. The church is the gathering of God's people. And it is the church of of God. It's the church, it's the gathering of God's people. The church is the apple of God's eye, His favorite people in the whole world. The most important people in the whole world to God is His people, the church. And we are the church of God and He has set His infinite affection and undeserved esteem on you, the flock. You know, in the world, we, we evaluate things very differently than God does. We look at the rich and famous, and they get our attention. We think they're the important ones, and, and, and they're not necessarily important at all. The important ones to God are His people, the church. And, and, and it is the church of God that shepherds are called to care for, these important people. And I think of, I think of the Secret Service taking care of the president. They take their job very seriously because of the importance of the president, don't they? Have, have you guys ever seen the documentaries on all that they do to, to watch and guard the president? All that goes on and how seriously they take their job? There's, there's a group of people more important than the president, as important as the president is. It's the church of God. 
And God calls godly shepherds to be the secret servicemen of sorts to care for and protect this flock. And this flock is obtained with his own blood, it says. That's a shocking statement. It's the church of God obtained with his own blood. Jesus Christ shed his blood. God, the God-man Jesus, shed his blood for his church. He shed his blood for you. The most precious commodity in the entire universe over all time is Christ himself. And he exchanged himself, represented in his blood, for you, his people. And therefore, because of his blood shed for you, you are the most important, the most valued commodity in the universe under him. He has shed his blood for you. Paul's bringing this home to these elders. Guys, this is important. Your charge is so important. Can you imagine if, uh, if somehow you got a hold of the flag raised on Iwo Jima? Do you guys know the story? Some of the young people may not know about Iwo Jima. Key island in the Pacific as the American Army, American Marines, Navy were making progress towards ending the uh, horrific war. Had to take this island, and it was a terrible island, uh, and there were uh, tens of thousands of Marines lost in the battle. And, 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 and finally, uh, as they made some headway, actually there was a lot more to go when they did this, but they made it up the mountain, Mount Surbachi there, and they raised this flag, the U.S. flag, over the island. And can you imagine if you, for some reason, got a hold of that flag? It was your flag. And you had it. How would you feel about that flag? You would understand, I think, what it represented. This flag represents the lives of tens of thousands given to bring us peace as a country, given for, for us. This flag is a, a, a holy flag. It, it re, in, in a sense, it's blood-stained with tens of thousands of soldiers who died. And it's my flag. How would you treat that flag? How much more the church of God obtained with the blood of Christ? More precious than that flag. Paul wants them to understand, the elders to understand, you, you have this precious commodity that you hold and you are to care for and to lay your life down by grace for them. That's how God thinks about the church. And to be a shepherd is to have a most holy charge for God's people. This charge is in light of a tremendous challenge as well. The shepherd's challenge. Paul talks about this. These precious people, precious to God and to be precious to the shepherds, are to be cared for amidst a reality, an imminent danger of wolves and false prophets. Of wolves and false prophets that exist. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul understood the challenge of, of the shepherd, that there is this challenge of wolves that would come in and false prophets that would draw people away. Never mind really what he assumes in all this is just the sin, the indwelling sin in the, in the world as well, drawing people away. That is why Paul ministers with tears. That is why Paul admonishes day and night. That is why Paul 
shares and preaches Christ from, from house to house and in public is because there's this challenge. There is the reality of sin. And there are people who need to hear and be protected from sin and from wasting their lives. Who need to be ushered into the grace of God and the promises of God that they might live in Christ and for Christ. He knows that there's these challenges. He knows that there are fierce wolves. There are those that are out there for, in Paul's time and today that, that have a taste for sheep. They want to make meals of sheep. And I don't know all the reason why that, that sheep are especially tasty to wolves, but they are. And there's wolves out there who want to devour the sheep. That's the reality. A wolf is really the opposite of a shepherd. A shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, to be an under-shepherd, you do that because you know the chief shepherd has done that for you. And, and through his power in you and his grace in you, and that same love for him and for his people, the under-shepherds lay down their lives for the sheep, for the good of the sheep. So a shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A wolf lays down the sheep for his life. A wolf devours a sheep to get, to feed his own life. A shepherd lays his life down for the good of the sheep. That's the difference. And shepherds and the church need to be aware of the difference. We need to recognize that that's going to happen. And, and, and Jesus tells us in Matthew that they'll come actually disguised as sheep. We talked about that in our uh, Kingdom Living series, Matthew, uh, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount. That they'll come to you in sheep's clothing. They'll look like sheep, but the difference will be their motivation. The difference will be that instead of wanting to lay their lives down for the sheep, they want to lay the sheep's lives down for themselves. So we need to ask, is, is this person in this for themselves or for the sheep in God's glory? Is being a pastor or a shepherd for this person about fulfillment of some life ambition or a quest for a platform or influence? Is it about that? Life ambition, a quest for platform or influence? Or is it about the call of God to lay their life down for others in His name? Not to say that there wouldn't be those temptations for somebody, but, but is that what they're motivated by? Is they're motivated more by what they can get, how they can fulfill ambition, or about how they can lay their lives down for others and enjoy the blessing of giving instead of receiving in Christ's name? We need to know that difference. Sheep need to recognize the difference. As you seek to recognize and raise up future elders to recognize the difference between wolves and sheep. And, and God has a wonderful way of transforming wolves or wolf-like sheep into shepherd-like sheep as well. So to be patient with the young shepherds sometimes, future shepherds can sometimes look more like wolves. Uh, be patient as God raises them up. But when they're ready, they need to look like a shepherd. Paul goes on to say uh, as well to look out for those that would uh, twist things to draw people after them, the false prophets that come from your own midst. It's a scary thought. False prophets come from our own midst. Most of the major heresies in the history of the church have come from within. People within the church. Uh, Strain, being wolf-motivated perhaps. Uh, Strain into error. You guys know uh, Jim Jones uh, the terrible tragedy that happened in the 70s uh, where 
Uh, about a thousand members of his cult took their lives in his name, Jim Jones' life. Do you know that he started out as a Methodist pastor? He started out as a pastor in a church that seemed legitimate. And he later strayed and took people after, drew them away to follow him, not Jesus. Shepherds are there to protect the flock from such men. Shepherds need to be such men, and a team of shepherds needs to protect the flock from such men and drive away the wolves. And the, and the, the wonderful thing is Paul's calling these shepherds to understand this. Why? So that they will drive away the wolves and protect the flock. Wolves are no match for godly shepherds in God's grace. Shepherds drive away the wolves. Shepherds care for the church. Godly shepherds are the future of the church. So we've talked about the life of the shepherd from Paul. We've talked, we've talked about the charge of the shepherd, the flock of God. We've talked about the challenge of the shepherd. And finally, and, and most importantly, the shepherd's chief confidence. There's a key truth behind shepherding that we need to understand. There's, there's this ultimate confidence that Paul has in this church that Paul has in these shepherds and their ability to shepherd. He says in verse 32, And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Verse 32. He commends them to the word of God, the word of His grace that is able to do the work of shepherding. You know, shepherds really don't do anything. They only really have one implement. It's the Word of God with the Gospel at the core. That's what shepherds have for their implement, really. And, and what shepherds do is they, is they proclaim God's Word. They teach God's Word. They lead people in following, believing, and following in God's Word. It's the Word of God that does the work. Shepherds are only as good as far as they implement the Word of God, as they teach and preach and lead people in obedience by grace to the Word of God. And so Paul commends them, these shepherds, to this word of his grace. Grace is an unmerited gift. The word of his grace, the gospel of grace, this truth that Christ has come and offered himself for us to pay for our sins. Apart from anything that we would ever merit ourselves, we cannot earn anything before God. He offered himself for us that all who come to him and place their faith in Christ have have their sins forgiven and on, on his behalf are welcomed into everlasting life and relationship with him. That's all of grace. And that grace, that that grace of the gospel changes our lives. That invitation of forgiveness and knowing God transforms our lives. When we see it for what it is, we see Christ for who He is and we respond to Him, grace changes us. And grace leads us in a new life of of growing and increasing Christ-likeness. And so Paul commends them to the word of God's grace. He knows that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He knows that these shepherds are going to be successful because they have the word of God on their side. And because when they bring the word, it brings life and it creates a church and it leads and guides that church. And so the shepherd's chief confidence is not their own ability per se, but the word of God, the word of his grace. And this is what Paul did. Paul didn't preach himself. He preached Christ. He labored to give them the word. He called people to repentance and faith in Christ. He knew all his success was in the word, in the gospel, in the whole counsel of God that goes with the gospel. So he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. 
if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. Paul understood the gospel was the power of God, and it is what made him successful. So being a shepherd is all about the gospel. And if the band could come up as we prepare to close, it's all about the gospel. Being a shepherd is being transformed by the gospel itself in your own life in such a way that God, that God works in you and changes you and, and shapes and molds you and fits you to serve His people. It's about the gospel affecting us and about the gospel through the gospel and what the gospel brings. Us being equipped to share the gospel, to equip others in the gospel, to proclaim it, to teach it, to lead others in obedience. The gospel that Paul used and wielded in in Ephesus turned Ephesus upside down. It transformed the province of Asia. And it was godly shepherds in, in partnership with Paul that did this. Godly shepherds changed Ephesus. Godly shepherds have changed the world as well. As Christianity has made an advance in the world, it's been through godly shepherds bringing the word. It's been through godly shepherds equipping the church to do the work the church as a whole is called to do. It is working throughout the world right now. As churches are led by godly shepherds, they're changing the world. The word is going out. Lives are being transformed. People are coming to Christ. Culture is being changed even. There's wonderful things going on. And the work of God in the future will be through godly shepherds as they care and lead the church. And he will bring to completion ultimately his gospel work and usher in the return of Christ as he uses godly shepherds to shepherd the church as the church does its work. So let us... I can't erase, understand these things. Let us understand what Paul's saying and the implications. Let us pray for godly shepherds. Would you take time over the next months, even as we lead up to our family meeting and beyond that, to ask God to raise up godly shepherds? There are men in process here, and there's probably men we don't even know about right now that God has planned for us. There's things we want to see happen in and through this church. One thing I saw uh, through my dad's passing is there's a lot of sheep out there that are harassed and helpless without shepherds. I, I, I led the memorial service and I, did, I just did things we do all the time in small group. I just prayed with them and, and shared the word and listened and we talked. And God was there. The presence of God was there like He is for us so often. And there were so many people that come, came up to me afterwards and, and said, I've never, I've never been around something like this. I've never had a, a memorial service like this. And, and, and any of us would have just said, well, it was a blessed time. God was there. It was good. But for these people, they hadn't seen it. And they were drawn to the Word. And they were saying, you know, I, many of them said, I want to go to your church. And there's, there's, our church is not near them. And it was wonderful. And I was thankful. But you know what it did in my heart? It made me realize, oh, God... Would you raise up people? Would you raise up godly shepherds to minister to these people? There, there are, within five miles of here, there's 100,000 people. Within 15 miles or so, 15 minutes or so, there's a quarter of a million people. And many of them have not heard about Christ. Many of them are God-fearers of sorts, but have not heard the gospel. There's a lot that God has for us to do. I believe he wants to use us and other churches as well in what he's doing. 
But it is critical that we have godly shepherds to lead us there. So let's pray and ask God, raise up godly shepherds. Let's see them trained and raised up. Let's all of us come together. We do it as a church. It's not my job uh, to raise up pastors. It's God's job ultimately, and we come alongside in our different roles. So let's do that. Let's pray. Let's welcome young men in as we get to know them and encourage them and, and help them and, and, and be a, a source of, of, of help in their lives. Let's affirm and receive them. And then when it's time, let's, let's install and deploy them and send them and rejoice at what God does. Godly shepherds are the future of the church. Paul knew that. That's why he gave these instructions. Let us learn and let us walk forward into the future he has for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we can learn here. And Lord, we ask you, our God, the God of grace, the God that that is the one that actually gives the grace for shepherds, would you give us multiple shepherds as a church? Would you raise them up? Would you give us a team here? And would you give us men to send out with a team as well to other places? Would you give us men who have a, a passion for evangelism? a passion for outreach, oh God, that would help us, would come alongside of us to be able to touch people's lives in your name, Lord. We need, we need help, and we know we're called to be part of that, Lord. It's the whole church going together, but under men you call to lead us. So would you raise up leaders? Would you raise up godly shepherds? Would you make us a church that is a pastor factory by your grace? for your purposes here and beyond. And Lord, we've already seen that. We thank you for the men that have come through and are now serving. We know that part of that will be to send them to other churches and groups. We're glad. But would you lead us in this? Would you do above and beyond all that we ask or imagine for your glory and the joy of all peoples in Christ's name. Amen. Hmm.